Good morning. It's really good to be with you today. Uh, my name is James Amadon. I am a follower of Jesus and a covenant pastor and executive director of Circlewood, an organization dedicated to reforming Christian faith around the renewal of all creation. And it is a real privilege for me to be with you today and to preach. And I want to thank the pastors and the staff and you for giving me this opportunity. I always love being with you here in worship. Today's the fifth Sunday of Lent, and that is a long journey we take every year to remember Jesus' journey to the cross and the hope that it brings. And our gospel text this morning is from Matthew 25. And if you've been around the church for a long time, this is probably a familiar text, often referred to as the story or the parable of the sheep and the goats. And as we think about this text today together, one of the principles of interpretation that scholars often talk about with Jesus' teaching is called the rule of end stress. And that when Jesus tells a story or has a teaching, often what comes at the very end is what is stressed and is the key to understanding what Jesus is about. And this text from Matthew 25 comes at the very end of the last section of Jesus' teaching. In Matthew, Jesus, 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 Matthew has organized Jesus' teaching in five big sections of his gospel, five discourses. And this is in the last discourse, and it's the very end of that discourse. So if we go by the rule of end stress, we think what Jesus says in this moment is pretty important. And what we will discover is from this point on, the story turns, and now Jesus is facing Jerusalem and the cross. So this text is a pivot point between Jesus' teaching, what he wants us to understand about what he's doing, what it means to follow him, and what he's about to show them in his journey to Jerusalem. And it fits the rule of end stress because the picture that Jesus gives us is of the end. The end end. The final end. The final judgment. And it couldn't be any more clearer. He tells them when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. I have always been struck by several things in this passage. The first is how comprehensive it is. Everyone is there, gathered before God in that moment. And what happens is so decisive. There's no question about it. And it's so eternal, what happens in that moment, and so clear. There are just two distinct groups, sheep to the right, goats to the left. Imagine how they feel as they are separated in those groups and wait to hear what is said. Imagine if we did that on Sunday mornings. Imagine if when you came in, the ushers looked at you and kind of like a wedding, instead of saying, are you with the bride or the groom, they would ask you, uh, today are you a sheep or a goat? 
You can sit on the right or the left. Sorry, folks. Good choice today. If you're anything like me, this text makes you uncomfortable. It certainly makes me feel uncomfortable. I am uncomfortable with the finality of it. This is the eternity we're talking about. And there's no trial. There's no appeal. There's no chance to plead your case. There's no nuance to it. Sheep to the right, goats to the left. And there seems to be no foreknowledge. The goats, the sheep, later on we'll see they're surprised at what is said about them. This text makes me uncomfortable. Makes lots of people uncomfortable in a couple of ways. For those who are anxious about their eternal state, this is a tough one. Perhaps you're the kind of person who went to summer camp every day when you, every summer when you were young and you prayed that prayer no matter how many times you've prayed it just to make sure that you were in. This text can make you anxious. Or perhaps there are folks out there, I know some of them, where this text doesn't make them anxious at all and they're not uncomfortable in fact, the clarity of it, they love. This gives them a license to pronounce judgment. I was part of a youth group in high school. It was a very conservative Pentecostal church. And I often heard this text, and it was preached with fire and brimstone. And if you have to ask the preacher what they were trying to do in that moment, they would literally say, I'm trying to scare the hell out of people. And they always knew who the sheep were and who the goats were. Because of that, some others read this text and they have the opposite response. They become very anti-judgment. We don't like this at all. We should not be pronouncing who's in the right or the left, the sheep and the goats. Didn't Jesus always also say, don't judge lest you be judged? The one who is without sin cast the first stone? This is a tough text. And you can see those three reactions. Maybe you've had a version of all three of them as you've thought about it. Maybe you're feeling one of those today pretty strongly. And the truth is, all three of those, anxiety, pronouncing judgment, not wanting to think about judgment at all, all three miss the point, and in doing so, miss the gift of this story. So what is the point? What is Jesus trying to teach us in this? What we can tell for sure is that Jesus is not giving us an actual clear picture of judgment. Whenever the Bible talks about the end, it's always restrained. It's always poetic, imaginative, evocative. It's not meant for us to know exactly, that's exactly how, what it's going to look like, what it's going to be. Because whenever the Bible talks about the future, what it's really concerned about is the present. What's going on now how people are being formed now in this moment. And when we think about it that way, this is what the text wants us to think about, is that our choices and our actions matter. That our lives have consequences, now and into the future. It makes me think of Russell Crowe's character in Gladiator. What we do now echoes into eternity. That's true. That's very true. 
Now, for those of us who are in a position of privilege and have some power and resources, and we have freedom to make choices in our daily life, this text should make us feel uncomfortable. Because it's saying, if you have choices in life, they matter. And read this text, and there's a clear path that Jesus wants you to take. But if you're in a different position, this text is very reassuring. To victims of injustice and cruelty, this is a text of hope. Imagine for a moment you're a family from El Salvador, struggling to provide for your children. There's very few economic opportunities. You can't just send your kids off to school every day. There's threats of violence in the streets. You're not so worried that your kids will grow up and have a good life. You're worried that they'll have any life at all. So you feel compelled to flee, to head north, where you hear there's more opportunity. On the way, you discover what it truly means to be hungry and thirsty. Each country you pass through, you are a stranger, and sometimes you're welcomed, sometimes you're not. Perhaps you sleep in the street, and your children get pneumonia and fall sick, and you struggle to care for them. Against all odds, you reach your destination only to be put in prison and sent back. For those in those circumstances, a world without judgment, a world without consequences is a world without hope and a world without meaning. So when we read a text like this, it's meant to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. And for both groups of people, this kind of judgment is crucial, helps us examine our lives, helps us connect to who God calls us to be. So if we go back to the text now with that in mind, we can say, okay, we're ready to receive what it has for us. What then is the basis of God's judgment? What characterizes a sheep? And this is what we hear. The king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. What do you notice from that? The first thing I notice should be awful reassuring to us in that what Jesus describes is easy. It's actually easy. That's it. Simple acts of kindness and compassion. Anybody can do it. And there are plenty of opportunities. Anybody can help someone who's hungry or thirsty 
to welcome someone who doesn't feel welcome. There's plenty of people in prison to go visit. Anybody can do this. Now, typically, we might imagine someone who we would describe as destitute as the recipient of this care. We might imagine in this area those who live in some of the homeless encampments that are such a hot-button issue in our region. But the text doesn't even say that. It doesn't even have to be someone who would be described that way. It's just anybody who's hungry or thirsty or stranger, anybody who's vulnerable and needs something that you have to offer, So for parents here today, how many times have you fed your children, clothed them, cared for them when they are sick? The list of acts are not exhaustive as well. They're just representative of acts of mercy and kindness. Think about your workplace. Have you ever offered an encouraging word to someone having a rough day? That would seem to count. Best of all, to me, there's no mention of success. There's no requirement. You can give something someone, you can give something, someone something to eat, but you're not required to feed them forever. You can help someone who's sick, but you don't need to be a miracle worker. You don't need to provide permanent solutions. There's no expectation in this text that you and I will fix, heal, or save anyone. It's not up to us. Hopefully that comes as some relief. I know for me there's times when I look at someone and maybe I've tried to help them and it hasn't worked. Maybe I've said something kind and it just doesn't seem to break through. Maybe I've offered and they haven't taken me up on it. And I thought I could have done more. This text says no. We're not responsible for that. It's easy. Anybody can do this. However, just like most biblical texts, there's an easy entryway, but the deeper you get into it, it gets a little more complicated, a little more difficult. And when we reflect on this text, it raises some complicating questions. Have you noticed that there's no set number of acts of mercy given? How many do you need to be a sheep? Is it just one over the course of your life? Is it one a day? One an hour? And the same is true for those who did not do good. How many missed opportunities do you need to qualify as a goat? What if you were kinder at the beginning of your life and not the end? What if it was the opposite? Who's keeping score? And then what does it mean to truly feed or clothe or visit or care? Is giving someone a cup of cold water on a hot day the the same thing as working for an organization like Water First and helping a village get water? What about giving someone a sandwich? Is that the same as what Mother Teresa did in her life? And what about the fact that now we are much more aware of the systemic issues of poverty and oppression? If you really want to feed someone... Eventually, you're going to think, why are they hungry? And you'll get into all sorts of thorny issues. If you really want to visit someone in prison, you're going to notice, wow, there's an awful lot of brown skin in this place. What's that about? And when you become aware like that, 
when you just stick to acts of compassion, it just doesn't seem like enough. And what about the fact that we are now more ecologically aware than ever? We know more and more that if we really want to care for the poor, we have to care for the earth. It's all connected. And what about vulnerable creatures, the non-human world, who seem to be suffering because of the way we're living? Do they fall under this text now? Who could not have been moved from the images last summer of the mother orca and her dead baby swimming through Puget Sound? Or what about my son Luke, who's always late for school when it rains because he's stopping to pick up earthworms and put them out of people's footpaths? Does that count? What about the surprise that they, they find that it's Jesus himself who is being cared for or Jesus himself who's being ignored? What does that tell us about Jesus' presence in the world? How we find Jesus, how we see Jesus. And we're good Protestants here. So did you notice there's no mention of faith in this text? Entrance is not based on belief, but actions. Should we be nervous that this is teaching us it's salvation by works? Man, sometimes I don't like the Bible. Everything that initially seems easy becomes harder. It does this because it forces us to go back and back and back again. And we go back to the text with these complicating questions. And then we begin to put it in the context of Jesus' life and teaching. And we see, no, this is not about giving us a picture of exactly how that lasts and how the future will unfold. No, it's not about an ethical checklist about making sure you're in the right and not in the wrong. What we see is that this text is about who we become when we follow Jesus. And the behaviors that Jesus describes are simply the fruit of a transformed life. That's why the sheep are surprised because they haven't been doing these acts of mercy and compassion to get into heaven. They haven't been doing it because they know, well, if I do this, Jesus will notice. They simply do it because that's who they are. That's what Jesus wants us to know. This is the fruit of a transformed life. Jesus wants us to become like him. And when we look at his life, his is the true human life that radiated and overflowed with compassion and mercy. I remember the first time I read from a scholar that said Jesus had no choice but to go to the cross. And it took me a while to realize he wasn't saying Jesus was forced to go to the cross. It was that Jesus was so full of divine love for the world that he couldn't imagine another possibility. It was just at the core of who he was. And when you think about that, you see that this text is not simply about meeting needs either. There's something deeper that Jesus is asking us to pursue. Relational solidarity. Because one of the keys to this test is when Jesus says, whenever you did these things, to the least of these of my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. Think about that. He calls them brothers and sisters. Family. There's a oneness. There's a connection in there. And he can do that because from this point on in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus becomes one of the least of these. When he's hanging on the cross, what does he say? I thirst. And there he is, stripped naked. 
When he's on trial, he hears his best friend in the world treat him like a stranger. And Peter says, I never knew the man. He gets thrown in prison. And beyond simply being sick, he gets beaten, broken, and crucified. Jesus knows what it is to be the least of one of these brothers and sisters because he is one. And he wants us to so identify with that heart that we can't help but treat others with the same compassion, mercy, and justice. And it's in that light that then we can come back to the question. The question we all maybe want to know, are we a sheep or are we a goat? And when, that's when we can say in all honesty, yes, we are sheep. Yes, we are goats. We struggle each and every day to be more like sheep, but sometimes we're more like the goats. That's when we must remember that before anything else, we stand before God as one of the least of these in need of grace. Everybody stands before Jesus the same. So how do we become more sheep-like? If I could boil it down to a recipe, it would be this. Trust God. Care for others deeply. Fail. Repent. And repeat. Trust God again. Care for others deeply. Fail. Repent and repeat. And God, the Good Shepherd, in the cross and resurrection of Jesus, has already taken care of the future. Amen. Please pray with me. Lord, as we begin to turn our eyes again to the cross, to the journey you have taken on our behalf, and for all the least of these brothers and sisters of yours, in fact, for all of creation. We pause and give you thanks. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your transformative power. We come before you humbly today and simply say, make us more like sheep. In Jesus' name, amen.